0: Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS, now the
1: always entertaining Chris Zabalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well here it is and once again it's time to go Inside EMS, I'm your host Chris Zabalero. I gotta tell you, we got tons of stuff to talk about. We've got Michael Morse with us, he's an EMS One columnist, uh, the author, we're going to talk about his book. Uh, and then there's a white elephant in the room that we need to talk about, but before we do that, before we talk about anything, I need to bring in my partner, the guy that grounds me, the guy that balances me, my good friend Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you doing?
0: I'm good, man. I'm, I'm just glad to know that I'm not the white elephant.
1: <laughs> of course not. No, that's just silly. It wouldn't be. But there is a white elephant in the room, and, and this week, Kelly, uh, there was some news that came out of Washington, D.C., and uh, I'm going to go ahead and pitch it to you uh, before we sit down with Mike.
0: Well, uh, you can ch- throw another corpse on the uh, growing pile of, uh, of failed medical directors at D.C. Fire EMS. Uh, Juliette Saucy, uh, formerly of New Orleans uh, EMS, who's only been with D.C. Fire uh, for seven months before she uh, gave up on trying to, to uh, polish that turd, has resigned, um, citing in, in a, a public letter uh, to the mayor uh, a number of systemic uh, are going on at DC Fire EMS uh, but she uh, Gillette pulls no punches in, in this letter. She, she describes the fire department uh, EMS uh, culture as toxic uh, and totally resistant to change. Um, and she is here in the uh, late in the or early in the month of February with uh, recertification coming up in March of 2016 has refused to sign off. On 700 people uh, needing EMT or National Registry recertification because she says that she has tried, uh, among other things, she has tried to uh, evaluate their skills and and do her due diligence uh, as far as medical director and signing these people off, uh, attesting to their skills as is required by National Registry, and they keep stonewalling her and, and won't let her do it. So she's not putting it up with it anymore, and she is going on to greener pastures. Chris, the landscape is littered with the professional corpses of medical directors who have tried to fix that problem uh, or turn around DC Fire and EMS uh, and have failed. Juliette Saucy is far from the first, uh, and she probably will not be the last. Man, what's it going to take to turn around that department?
1: Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, Kelly, when when the, the letter came out, and for those of you who haven't read it, it's been all over the news. It's not only been in the EMS news, it's been in the national news. Uh, you look on all the major networks and you do see uh, interviews with Dr. Saucy. You do see uh, people commenting and and republishing her resignation letter. And the challenge here is a couple different things. You know, you and I have been very critical, of course, of DC Fire and EMS. Uh, we have given kudos and pats on the back for things that have been doing – things that have been done right. But now when you read this this scathing letter, when you read this, this horrible account of seven months of trying to develop a system – into uh, greatness, because, again, Dr. Saucy does come from New Orleans, and uh, New Orleans had some challenges uh, back Mm -hmm. in the day, and and they're a premier EMS system, past EMS Service of the Year winner. And when you talk about what's going on in D.C., I don't know that there is a fix, man. I don't know that there is anything that you can say based on her letter that says this fixes the problem. Now, here's my challenge after the letter came out, and after all of us at EMS were now reading it and pointing a finger to say, look at the systemic problems, the mayor's office comes out, who she wrote the letter to, and says, we think Dr. Saucy's account isn't true. So here is a woman who has a great reputation, who has a lot of honor, who has a lot of integrity, who has a lot of respect in the EMS career field, being criticized by a mayor who says, that dr saucy's account is a little bit overboard there is nothing that fixes this system
0: no and and she points it out in her letter uh the the resistance to change starts from the top down this is ultimately a leadership failure and not just leadership of dc fire ems but leadership of the city council and the mayor and everyone else uh they are sticking their heads in the sands refusing to to acknowledge that they have by far the most dysfunctional, uh, pathetic excuse of an EMS system in this country, Uh, when it should be exactly the opposite. This is our nation's capital. It It should boast the best EMS care available in this country. It should be a shining example to others. Instead, it's a cautionary tale. Um, and, a joke. And, and a joke, and a joke. Yes, yeah. it's punch a punchline. It's you a punchline. We, we, we talk about DC Fire EMS because they're always in the news. But quite frankly, it, it, it gets to feeling like you're clubbing baby seals after a while. There's just no sport in it <laughs> because they're so easy to pick on. Uh, and you know, I've told you before in, in our talks uh, that I, I, I truly feel for the medics trying to practice good care in that system. Because their leadership, uh, to my mind, their union as well, is failing them in in turning that system around. Um, You know, uh, it was pointed out to me uh, by uh, other readers that a number of D.C. fire medics work and do well in surrounding systems and and work part-time in in other EMS systems where they practice uh, stellar paramedic care. They just cannot do it at that system. Uh, And that's a problem. That's been a problem since uh, before uh, Ellerby quit um, Dennis Rubin uh, tried what he could and, and had it kind of going in the right direction from what I from what I understand but it has uh, basically gone in the toilet uh, from the Kenneth Ellerby uh, leadership uh, on to present day you know uh, uh, dr. saucy points out in her letter you know that the department won't even measure performance with response times. They they don't measure response times in any meaningful fashion. They try to disguise poor response times with smoke and mirrors and fancy graphs uh, and inaccurate uh, information so they can feel good about it and say that, hey, we are uh, providing care in a prompt fashion, uh, but it's not uh, a realistic measure. Um, no accountability. Uh, and here's, here's something that's – the organizational chart are not reflective of the work that is done daily. 80% uh, EMS calls, which is which is a common figure in fire EMS, and there are only three people on the EMS leadership side. Only three. <laughs> you know, that's, right. just, that's just pathetic.
1: It's yeah. Yeah. absolutely
0: here's- pathetic. And she being one of them.
1: Right. And here's one of the things that really got to me in her letter, and uh, I'll read a little excerpt from it. Because this really kind of sums up, um, I I think, the challenges. Because what this relates to, Kelly, is this relates to people dying. The latest example, this is from her letter, the latest example is a young man stabbed in the chest Wednesday around 10 a.m. He suffered a potentially survivable injury, and it took more than 18 minutes for a transport ambulance to reach the 35-year-old man. So basically she says, we failed that young man, and it did not make the news. While some of our needless deaths have made headlines, tragically, people die needlessly quite frequently, and the majority of them don't make the news. That is a scary statement.
0: Yes. As much as DC Fire EMS makes the news for, you know, things like bringing in the unconscious shooting victim and not knowing that he'd been shot, oh, he's on PCP, like they, uh, like they did last week, um, there are more, far more, that don't make the news. Um, it's, oh, man. Chris, I honestly, I, I, I don't think this sil- system is salvageable in its current form. I think it's time to blow up the enterprise.
1: Yeah, but you can't. But here's the reason that it doesn't work, because you've got leadership from the top down that is uh, not supporting EMS. Then, in Dr. Saucy's uh, resignation letter, it talks about that she wanted to conduct competencies, Mm because she wanted to be able to verify the skills. And Labor said, you know what? We don't want you to do that. We don't want you to do that because people are testing for their next rank, and we feel it'll do undue stress on them. We feel it'll bring undue stress on them. Now, the, the challenge with that is, it's not just the... Leadership that has the challenge. It's also labor now that's keeping the the the, the paramedics and the EMTs from growing. You, as the middleman, will never be able to bring those sides together. And. You blow up the the enterprise, as you say, and you get rid of the leadership. You still got labor, which is saying that, you know, giving people credentials or or credentialing people for their skills is Mm -hmm. bringing undue stress for fire, you know, fire promotional exams. Tell me everybody in that department in April of 2016 is going to sit down for a fire promotion exam and they can't do competencies. Are you kidding me? That's why it's not going to work.
0: Oh, it's it's. I really am, am at a loss for words for how to describe the intransigence of, of the administration, the, the fire department leadership, and the mayor and the city council to uh, in acknowledging that their system is irrevocably broken. It is just broken. You know, Dr. Saucy points out in her letter that past medical directors have been sued and or are being sued uh because they signed off on competencies of medics that they had never seen, never met, uh, and just rubber stamped them. And she was unwilling to do that. And you can't blame her. Um, and yet they they throw every obstacle in her path on uh, actually testing those competencies. Um, it's just ridiculous. You know, how long has this DC Fire EMS all hazards agency experiment been going on now they they touted this when when it happened that they would they would cross train everyone um in in fire suppression and in uh, als uh and they would have uh confidently trained fire medics uh in every station um and they would be a premier all hazards agency uh and it ain't happening. Right. And I don't think it will happen. I don't think the only. I think the only way this will happen is just like Doctor Saucy points out. Uh, you need to break EMS off. We need to. If this system is going to get fixed, they need to not just hire single role medics. They need to totally break off EMS from the fire department and get it out of their control and go back to a, uh, a separate EMS agency, a third, a third service agency, uh, that is not police or fire.
1: Yeah. But you're still going to have the, the, you're still going to have labor that's causing the problem. I got to tell you, yeah, you're going to have, I, and labor
0: that's that... causing the problem, but you may have, but, but, but you will not have a, a fire department local union who is blocking every, uh, every, uh, Attempt to to discipline and and supervise employees and to hold them accountable for their actions. Uh, you break them off into a separate agency. Um they will not need IAFF representation anymore. If they want to unionize, fine. Let them. Let them. Let them join one of the the EMS unions out yeah, there. Can you but just
1: you can't, you can't boot them out to, of the union, though? You just can't boot no, them out of the union because well, you, you can, separate.
0: you can. You can give them a separate union or push for a new collective bargaining agreement to give the the uh, the leadership of the the uh, department more teeth in punishing the transgressors.
1: Uh, and it's. Uh, I think that you know. I. I don't know. I mean, it's. It's. I don't even know what else to talk about, and I think I'm just going to make a final comment before we transition here. That is this the expectation of fire-based EMS? And, and let me give you a little bit of background of where I'm going, Kelly. You know, I, I, as a consultant now, I've been traveling around the United States, and I've been helping systems set up community paramedicine. I, I've done seven systems now in the United States, and I'm very, very proud of that. The last time I had the opportunity to sit down with a major metropolitan EMS agency to talk about their development to community paramedicine, mm-hmm. the message to me was, we want to do this, but we have a fire chief that doesn't care about EMS. We're having problems. We're having response time challenges. We're having uh, uh, resource challenges. Mm-hmm. And the fire chief does, just doesn't care about EMS. And my question to you All is – they care
0: about the EMS revenue.
1: Right, is this a systemic <laughs> problem that fire and EMS should not be part of the fabric of our of our career field?
0: Uh, I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to get I'm going to get heat from that. Well, I think we
1: both are because I, I think I have to agree yeah. with you.
0: When when I say that fire department and EMS should fire department should not run EMS, um, I am not basing that on. The fact that I hate firefighters, I like firefighters. The, the point being is that I think that both of those jobs are sufficiently important that they need to be single role. And it, the, the examples are, are myriad out there that uh, people have, have thrown the fire department and EMS together uh, in some misguided attempt to save money. Uh, it has not saved money. What it has done is increase the bureaucracy and, and degrade the EMS care available. Uh, and you, if you want to know uh, why it doesn't work, all you have to do to look for examples is look at any major EMS system run by the fire department, and it's got major challenges. Um, right. And it's still the, the same old deal. Um, you've got 80% of your, your call volume uh, uh, run by, what, three people? Uh, or, or led by three people, they devote eighty uh, percent of their resources to twenty percent of their call volume right. um, and and that's testament right there that fire departments by and large, do not view EMS as their core mission. They view it as a means to an end. It is right. a jobs program and it is a uh, revenue generation. Not medical care, as far as they're concerned. Um, now, if that doesn't apply to your department, well, I applaud you, and and, and that's not a slap at fire medics. Um, if they're trying to provide good care, then my, they're my brothers in EMS, just like anybody else. I'm talking about the leadership and the motivation uh, of why fire departments take over EMS, and I think it's it's profoundly lacking, not just in DC Fire, but you can pick your major fire department EMS systems and and see. Uh, All the holes in the system, Uh, they're far from being alone there. Um, Detroit, Philly, uh, I can name uh, oodles of others. Uh, There are small ones out there, small EMS systems, fire department EMS systems that do a good job of it. But by and large, those systems have acknowledged that they are no longer fire departments that run EMS. They're EMS systems that put out fires now and then. And until D.C. Fire uh, makes that... You know, has that epiphany? Nothing is going to change. Yeah, I'm Not with if you 100%. It Remains within the fire department,
1: right? I don't know that we ever get rid of this story that's coming out of Washington D.C. But let's go ahead and put that aside for now, and let's go ahead and take a seat at the guest table. And you know, you know, one of the things that I think is really incredible about our career field is that over the past few years, more and more we're starting to read. Uh, anthologies. We're starting to read stories. We're starting to read novels from folks that are within our career field. And I think it's really interesting when, when you get to, you know, kind of see the other side of how people do their business and the stories. And, you know, it seems to be from the old Bon Jovi song, Kelly, it's all the same, only the names will change. But it's interesting to see the stories that people have. Well, as we take a seat at the guest table, we're going to bring in Michael Morris, and, and he is one of those guys that now have some books out there that uh, we want to go ahead and buy and contribute to his retirement. Here he is, EMS1 columnist. If, if you haven't read his column, Stories from the Street, author, Michael Morris. Michael, how you doing?
2: Very good, Chris. Hi, Kelly. It's great to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having
1: me. Well, I got to tell you again, man. It's just so proud when we have uh, folks in our career field that are really now trying to step outside, and they're becoming authors with their experiences. I mean, we got reality shows, we've got authors, we've got, and you know, this is real stuff. And it seems for years, Mike, that we're starting to get outside the normal. And people like you are writing books. So anyway, j- just for the folks that are out there who may not know who you are, just give them a little bit about your background, and then we'll talk about your book.
2: Great. I uh, started with the Providence Fire Department in 1991. I spent 10 years on engine and ladder companies, mostly engine companies. Loved the fire service, loved everything about it. Providence also has EMS, which uh, the Providence Fire Department handles EMS. And I, I, for the 10 years I was on the engine and ladder companies, I kind of had a kind of like a infatuation, if you will, with the with the, the EMS side. I felt like I was missing something. I loved the fires. I loved all of that stuff, pumps and all that, uh, getting roofs and uh, the camaraderie. But I just always felt like I was missing like the action in the city. So after my 10th year, I decided to go over to—actually, I didn't decide. The city decided for me. They detailed people over firefighters to go on the, as we call them, rescues. So I uh, did a six-month stint on Rescue One in South Providence, Found out that I really liked it. It wasn't all that bad as the guys made it out to be and I had a knack for it. So uh, I took took the initiative and I just transferred over to the EMS division. Spent another 13 years as a medic. EMT cardiac, we call them in Rhode Island. It's not a paramedic. It's not an EMT. It's kind of in the middle. Um, did that for 13 years. Took a few promotional exams. Retired as a captain last uh, last year.
1: You know, and I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't know, Mike, just, just touching on the EMT EMTC um, in Providence, they use the EMT cardiac designation. I guess it could be similar to that of an intermediate, but uh, it's really kind of one of the only places in the United States that, I uses, that uses that designation, and basically the role is for you guys to be part of the cardiac arrest, and you're able to respond, and, and you're able to treat those, and, and that's really unique, I think, for our
2: career field that a lot of people in the United States don't see. I don't think it's going to be around much longer. They've made some changes already. Um, people with a cardiac designation right now are going to be grandfathered in and we can keep it, continue to take our um, tests and, and um, refresher courses at that level. But there's going to be a new level, which again is not paramedic level. They're going to keep similar to the cardiac level. I wish they would just get away with it once and for all and have us be uh, paramedics. Um, people you know, being people, if we don't have to do something, we're certainly not going to do it. The pay doesn't go up or anything. We do have paramedics in Providence, but most of us are just EMT cardiac level. Oh, interesting.
1: But let's go ahead and talk about why you're here. I'm going to give Kelly the first question.
0: So, Michael, I'm I'm familiar with your work uh, and and a huge fan. What are your books about, and, and what inspired you to write them?
2: We'll do. Hey, Kelly, how are you? Good to finally talk with you. I, um, if you recall, back in '06 or '05. I found your blog. We did a couple of um, comments on each other's blogs. I thought you were great. I still do. And, uh, wait, wait, wait,
1: wait. We can't. Enough. We oh. can't have you filling his head with that. So
2: it's, it's uh, it, big enough. I'm.
0: Sure. Hey, hey, Let the man talk. Let I'm. I'm. Yeah, all about hearing a little hearing a little praise and let the
2: man show a little love.
1: You guys are in cahoots. Okay, Mike. Sorry to interrupt you. You, Any
2: more than it already is. You really are a um. We're inspiring just because you weren't afraid to. Tell the story with a little bit of emotion. That was one of my, um, I was worried about that. Firefighters being firefighters, I thought I was going to be hung out to dry because I, I actually laid it all out in the books and in the blog. Um, come to find out, it went over really well with the guys. because I didn't really focus on myself. I focused on the situation and the people that we were responding to uh, to assist. Um, what I did for the book, I always thought one shift would make a great book as opposed to a career and highlights just because of the uh, the ebb and flow with the patients and the non-emergent calls, the ridiculous calls, the very ridiculous calls, and then the catastrophes, basically. And they all would happen during a long shift. The shift that I wrote about for Rescuing Providence was 34 hours a day, 10-hour day, 14-hour night of overtime, and then another 10-hour day. And uh, I think there was like 26 calls during that time. And everything in that book happened. I didn't just pull the good ones for the uh, purpose of the book. And um, it came out pretty good, actually. So... That was uh, that was one shift, Rescuing Providence.
1: That's interesting. So, so Mike, just for the people that don't know, uh, there's actually – you have two books now that are kind of going out as a package deal, and, and certainly we want to go ahead and get to the information of how people uh, can purchase it. But the first one is Rescuing Providence, and the second one is Rescue One Responding. Now, as you mentioned, and I, I think it's very interesting – Is that you're talking about? That this is just one day. This is just a normal day, you know, in in the life of a of an EMS provider. So, what was it about this day? Why did you pick this specific day? Or was it that is this the one that stands out in your mind? You know, is this the one you said? Let's see how this day goes, and I may write about it. How did you pick this day?
2: First of all, I'm not an author. I am now. I wasn't then. That was in 2004 when I decided I was going to do this. So what I did was very spur of the moment. The morning I woke up, I said, that's it. This is the day. I had a couple of yellow sticky pads. I put them in my top pocket, along with a couple of pens, and off I went to work. Everything that I encountered on my way to work, I wrote down. The sunrise was particularly beautiful that day. Um, traffic was late. A million things that never made it into the book. Um, then each call that we went on, starting right at 0700, I would write down just colors, um, smells, uh, Conversations that stood out a little bit, um, the little details here and there, and I did that for the next 34 hours. Um, then I spent about a year putting it all together with some little stories from home and relationship things, a couple of flashbacks, just you know, just to make things a little bit more interesting. I couldn't make it all just about picking up intoxicated people. It all just came together that way. I didn't realize when I started it, it was actually going to, you know, be able to finish it, but it all worked out pretty good, and the book came out in, geez, 07. It was published. And, uh, of course, it was a very small publisher. You mentioned earlier that this uh, a, a plur- proliferation of people writing books now. It wasn't like that in 07 It was just not like that. Right, you're right. Every major publisher uh, reneged on, on publishing it. They didn't think people would buy it. The public had no interest. Just today, I happen to look on um, Amazon. I think there's three paramedic books out there and, that are selling tremendous, that are getting national exposure reviews right. on book lists. You know, we didn't have any of that. It was kind of like a cult following, if you will. Right. And we had to work really, really hard just to get people to pay attention. Um, Rescuing Providence sold well. I, I was amazed at how well it sold, but it was only about 2,000 copies. For me, I thought that was fantastic.
1: Sure. You know, one of the things that I think was interesting before we started to record, you and I were chatting, and you mentioned that you just went into a, a local Barnes & Noble just to see if it was there. And, and they had about 40 copies. You wound up signing them. So I got to tell you, that's got to be really cool. I remember when my textbook came out, I went into a Barnes & Noble and pulled it off the shelf and uh, got a picture with it. So it it kind of is an interesting feeling.
2: It it was a great feeling. I didn't expect I had no idea. I would hope that they would have bought maybe five. I was thinking five would be good. I published a book last year about um, adopting a dog, nothing to do with EMS, although it did have a lot to do with EMS because it was kind of transitioning from being full-time EMS to retired writer guy adopting a dog and PTSD and all that stuff that I was dealing with at the time. But um, they had only like five copies. This one, 40 copies. I almost fell off my seat. Awesome, awesome. Well, great. So, Michael, I got a
0: question for you. When you were writing your last book, was there any one moment, uh, any any one event, uh, an aha moment where you had to sit back and, re- and reflect, wow, that just happened? Uh, have anything like that?
2: My life when I wrote that book was very busy. Two teenage girls, girls. Um, my wife was, is battling MS and has been. We had a cleaning business that we were, you know, trying to hold on to, but with a wife that can barely um, walk, it was kind of difficult. So I was so, so busy. I ended up writing 90% of the book at work between calls. And in some of my more dramatic moments, I see with the blood still on my hands, which is total bony, because um, I was washed my hands before I typed. But it truly was. Like, in between calls, I would get back to my station, do the state report, and if I had a few minutes, I would throw out a chapter or a half a chapter or some thoughts. And the whole book came together 90% written in my station in the office of Rescue Company One. So a lot of the emotions that were, I was reading about what happened on that particular day that I took the notes, but I was reliving what had just happened. So it was kind of a, the emotions were raw. So it really came out um, very realistic. Sure. I was even surprised when I reread it.
1: Well, Mike, one of the things that you just talked about, and I was going to kind of lead into this, and I'm glad you kind of touched on it, you did mention the the, the initials PTSD. So as, and I think all of us that are in this career field for any amount of time, the, the 15s, the 20s, the 30 years, we've taken a certain amount of our, our experience home with us, and we've lived with it. When you were writing, did you find this to be a therapy? Did, did this kind of help pull yourself out of Maybe those feelings of uh, post traumatic stress.
2: You know, you would think so, and I I, I used to say that it did just to um, so I could validate my time that I was spending doing raiding. But what it actually turned out doing was it just prolonged the misery. I um, I was under a heck of a lot of stress at the time, and a lot of bad things were happening in the city. Uh, we had a rash of shootings, which are still going on. There was hangings. You know what goes on. It's just uh, you know it's part of the part of the deal. Um, and then, so I would live it, and then I would relive it by writing about it, and I'm glad I did it, because now the PTSD is pretty much in the past, although I have little weird chills I'll break out in every now and then, and TV shows always freak me out when there's dead people, especially good dead people on TV shows, like the regular actors act, is that, but when they do a really good job of acting. I mean, the dead. people who really put their heart into it. As <laughs> yeah, just, like, when they really what, okay, the yeah into being dead, you know, you can tell, you can see the effort um so yeah it didn't really help it kind of prolonged it and, it and it made me i wrapped myself in that world morning noon and night while i was writing the book
1: interesting interesting see i would have felt it had the opposite effect whereas mm-hmm. it would have given you some kind of outlet and uh, you know almost some kind of therapy but that was interesting
0: all right michael we've heard all about the book now let's get to the nitty-gritty where can people buy it where where can we direct people uh, to uh, contribute to your double-wide fund and buy some of your books? Double-wide fund. That's what I call my my uh, PayPal link is the,
2: the double-wide fund. And, of course, we want signed copies. <laughs> signed copies are coming your way. It is available on Amazon, nationwide, Uh books. There's you know, a ton of um, online retail stores. If you go to Postal Press which is the publisher, and you click on their little link, they list about 30 stores that it's in, or online retailers. I know Barnes & Noble's is carrying it locally. I'm not sure about nationally. I hope it is. I hope they have one or two copies. That's, that's the plan. If it picks up momentum, then obviously a lot more people will have it. Um, and I think it is picking up momentum. It just came out last week, and um, I think it's going pretty well. But as for now, your best bets: BarnesandNoble.com or Amazon.com, unless you live in Rhode Island or Massa or Connecticut, and it's probably in the Barnes & Noble right there.
1: Awesome. Well, we're going to go ahead and look for it, Mike. I got to tell you, it's been really great for you to come and join us. Hey, let's go ahead and plan on having you back. We'd really like to talk about the uh, adopting the dog book. I, I yeah, think yeah, that a lot cool. of us out I there. there I yeah, I think a lot of us out there can use some. I'm sure there's some funny stories in there, but uh, promise you you'll come back on and uh, be a guest on Inside EMS.
2: I certainly will. Thank you, Chris. Thank All you, right. Kelly.
0: All right, it looks like that wraps another show. I'd like to thank uh, Mike for appearing uh, and talking with us about his books. Uh, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and give us your concerns, comments, and questions at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co host Chris Ceballero and our guest this week, Michael Morse, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. And we'll catch you guys next week.